Well, welcome again to Prosper the City. Welcome to Pathfinder. My name's Dion. You know, there are a few things that are more ancient than advice about how to handle it when someone hurts you. Uh, you can go back to Hammurabi in his code, a summary of his code, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's one way to handle it, right? Someone takes out your eye, you take out their eye. Or uh, I love how the British added onto this, taking this idea of revenge, and they said not only that, but revenge is a dish that is best served cold. You know, make them wait for it a little while. Uh, an anonymous source said this, when a woman steals your husband, there's no better revenge than to let her keep him. Someone clapping? Come on now. Um, uh, Chinese proverb, he who seeks revenge should remember to dig two graves, right? It's not just the person that you're getting, but uh, there's maybe some, some stuff that's going to happen to you. Um, and, then, and then finally, a German proverb, the Germans add in, revenge converts a little right into a great wrong. You can think about that one for a second. Now, if you scan the advice over time about how to handle it when someone hurts you, you're going to find a lot actually about revenge. You're going to find everything from, hey, revenge is sweet, it's yours, you deserve it, you should take it, to, hey, be careful. You know, there might be two victims of revenge if you go that way, some cautionary tales. But you'll find few pieces of advice that sound like this. I want you to see this now. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. See that? Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are the words of Paul. Now I want you to hear the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense. That's common wisdom. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And here's what your father in heaven does. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here's what you're going to find if you study God's word. From Old Testament all the way to New Testament, God's word is consistent that we are called not to return evil for evil when it comes to our enemies, but when someone hurts us, when someone sins against us, we are called all throughout the scriptures to prosper them. Now, how many of you uh, know Jeremiah 29, 11? Know that, anyone? Uh, maybe you don't know the numbers, and I'm terrible at remembering numbers of verses, but, but I think you might remember these words. Maybe you've heard them before in your life. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Does that sound familiar now, Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah, it's a life verse for many, many people, a powerful verse, powerful promise when you're going through a hard time. But what's even more compelling than just the simple words, the simple promise of this text, is the context in which these words were spoken. See, these words were spoken during a very difficult time in the history of God's people, Israel, during a time where they were in exile. Now, in our last series, My Reemergence, we talked about an exodus where they left Egypt. God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. They wandered around in the wilderness. They eventually came to live in their own land. For a few hundred years, they enjoyed sovereignty as a state. 
and then came the exile. The exile started in the year 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful military commander, Neo-Babylonian Empire, he comes through the whole ancient Near East in city state after city state. He conquers them. He, he, he makes them subjects. He takes them into part of his empire. 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, the capital of, of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. 605, he comes and he besieges Jerusalem. And here's what he does. He leaves the city standing, but he takes as prisoners of war all of the young brightest, best, strongest, most wise Hebrew people, the leadership of the Hebrew people. He takes them into captivity all the way over to Babylon, a city far away. Um, Then he comes again in 598, doesn't leave him alone, comes in 598, does more damage to the city, takes another group of people, prisoners of war, captives, He deports them to Babylon and other parts in the empire. At this time, he also puts in, this is interesting, he puts in a place a puppet king, a guy by the name of Zedekiah. He had roots in the royal family, but he knew that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar knew that Zedekiah would be easily controlled, so he put him in place um, over Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem kind of had a king, but it was a vassal, really, of Nebuchadnezzar. Then 587, and then ultimately 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes again, and he destroys Jerusalem. He tears down the walls, destroys the temple. He takes that king... Zedekiah that he put in place, sets him down, brings out Zedekiah's two sons, the the princes of the king, and he makes Zedekiah watch as his sons are put to death by the Babylonian guard. Then he takes it a step further. Zedekiah, that puppet king, he he has his, this is gross, plug your ears if you're, you know, sensitive. He, He has his eyes gouged out. And then he puts him in, yuck, right? And puts him into prison, so that the last thing this man would have seen is the brutal murder of his two sons. As a lesson, you do not cross Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. 587 started the siege, 586, Jerusalem falls. And, and here's the thing, this is the context. All of this is going on when Jeremiah is writing his book. It's in between, if we can have that timeline for one second, sorry. Uh, it's in between these dates right here specifically that Jeremiah 29 is written. Jeremiah sits down and he writes a letter to some of those young men, some of those early leaders who were carried off in that first deportation, who are now living in Babylon. He writes them a letter instructing them on what God wants them to do. So now we're going to look at that. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. Here's what Jeremiah says. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, so that first group of exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah's at home in Jerusalem. He's writing a letter to all of his countrymen, members of uh, his nation who are in exile. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the message, okay? That's the context, here's the message. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Now, this would have been hard for some of the Israelites to hear. This this means it's gonna take a while. You see that the captivity is gonna be 70 years long. So God says this isn't gonna be over sometime soon. You just need to settle in. You need to learn to make peace with your circumstances and find a way to increase, not decrease. Find a way to prosper. But not only that, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city 
to which I have carried you into exile. Get this, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, does all this awful stuff to their nation. They're taken this captive prisoner. They're, they're forcibly removed from their homes. They're brought to another place. They're put into the service of the king. And God says to them, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That city, Babylon, you want us to bless Babylon? Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, this is how you know that these are God's words, not Jeremiah's words. This is how you know Jeremiah was a prophet. Because no human who lived through what Jeremiah had lived through, who had seen what Jeremiah had seen at the hands of the Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, would be able to say these words. Oh yeah, just, just go ahead and bless those guys. No way. This is only the word of God who could say this. I want you to now not only make peace with the fact that you're kidnapped and you're living as prisoners of war for the evil empire. Oh yeah, I not only want you to to flourish there, but I want you to bless the very people who destroyed your nation, who killed members of your family, who made a mockery of your king. That's right. I want you to bless them. I want you to prosper them. I want you to prosper that city, that city that is a hub of evil in the world. I want you to prosper it. No human could ever ask another human to do that. These are definitely the words of God. And uh, God, uh, in this context then, continues the rest, this part that you know, um, the, the rest of Jeremiah 29. So this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. You'll come back home. For I know, here it is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you see? I mean, if you thought Jeremiah 29, 11 was powerful before, man, it just got so much more powerful, didn't it? God's saying to these people who have been kidnapped, living in, in, in exile, their world has been turned upside down. And here's what God says to them. He says, you know what? It's gonna be okay. Because even when you're in exile, I'm still with you. And I've got plans for you. My plans won't be thwarted. My plans for you are good. My, my end result, my, my destiny for you is prosperity, not harm. I feel like I just need to remind us of this today, here, now. Because 2020 has been a year when our world's been turned upside down, Right? And, and all of us, we're, we're kind of waiting. We're waiting for the next thing to happen. And, and we feel like our whole future hangs in the balance. On November 3rd, it's, it's all about November 3rd. Who's going to be elected on November 3rd? Who's going to sit in the Oval Office? And, and when is that coronavirus vaccine going to come into the world? And, and, and we're kind of holding our breath, just waiting for these things to happen, waiting to see what's going to happen, if our world's going to get better, if it's going to get worse. But here's the thing, here's what we need to remember. We serve a God who says, you know what, it doesn't matter when your world's been turned upside down and it doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office or who sits on a Supreme Court bench, none of that matters. I'm still your God. And even when your world is turned upside down and nothing seems right and you don't know what's going on and, and you're terrified and everything hangs in the balance, I'm not only your God, but I'm still good. And I will find ways to prosper you. I will find ways to bless you. It may not be easy for you, but you don't have to fear because I will always be good. I know the plans I have. I know my destiny for you and nothing will get in the way of my destiny for you. That's what God says to us today. Do you hear it? 
I'm preaching, someone better say amen. Right, do you hear it? We don't have to fear. If, if God could tell these exiles living under the Babylonian rule, they had never seen a conqueror like Nebuchadnezzar. You want to talk about evil. You want to talk about power. They're living under his dominion. And God says, don't worry about it. Because you're my people and I'm your God. And I know the plans I have for you. You just believe in those plans too. Do not fear. Do not fear. In the worst of times, this promise of prosperity came. That's what we need to remember. But it's not just a promise of prosperity for God's people. This is where it's weird. God promises that he will prosper that city, the city full of enemies, through his people. And, and this is where I, I think the story gets so much more interesting. See, God not only gives us Jeremiah 29 and gives us you know, that picture of Jeremiah writing this letter back in Jerusalem, sending it off to the exiles, uh, but God gives us a picture of what's happening on the other side over in Babylon. It's kind of like a split screen moment. Jeremiah's writing and then it's like, meanwhile, over in Babylon, and he shows us pictures of faithful people who had been carried into exile in what their lives are, are, are doing there. One of those people is a guy by the name of Daniel. And there's a whole book of the Bible named after him. He's one of those young people very young, he was carried off in exile in that first deportation in 605. And his life, you know, while Jeremiah's writing this letter, his life is becoming a living testimony of this promise of God, this crazy idea that he still, while in exile, will prosper his people and he will use his people to prosper that city, even their worst enemies. So I want us to look today uh, at this example from Daniel's life, right? Jeremiah is writing a letter to people like Daniel, and I want us to look at this picture of Daniel's life from Daniel chapter two. It says, in the second year of his reign, still early on in King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had dreams. And dreams were a big deal in that ancient world. Um, they meant a lot to people. They, they took a lot of stock in what their dreams meant as maybe um, you know, divine words. So his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever, tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. <laughs> right, um, this is how you know you've made it big in life. When someone actually gives a rip about what your crazy dream last night was. Right, we all know how this is. You have a dream, you're like, oh my gosh, I had the weirdest dream. No one cares, really. I mean, your dreams mean a lot to you. They don't mean any, they're nonsense. They don't mean anything to anyone except you. And how many times do we share our dreams and we're like, oh gosh, I gotta hear your dream. When you're the king of a big empire, you not only have wealth and power and great food and drink, but you have a whole entourage of people who are just itching to hear your dreams. That's how you know you've made it big. So they said, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. I'm changing it up on you. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. And remember, I just told you about Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> he means it. This is not just hyperbole. But he says, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Let's remind you how this works, King Nebuchadnezzar. But the king answered, 
Okay, I get it. I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. Nebuchadnezzar is on to his wise men that they're not so wise. They're con artists. They're like, oh, tell us the dream and we'll tell you something you want to hear. We'll give you a favorable outcome because we want you to like us. And Nebuchadnezzar is starting to figure this out about his people, that they're not really people of integrity. They'll say whatever he wants to hear. So he's like, you know, we're not playing it this way anymore. If, if you can't tell me the dream, if you don't actually know what the dream was before you interpret it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I know you're conspiring and you're going to tell me misleading things. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. <laughs> and these guys then go, these challengers answered, they said, Okay, okay, here it is, buddy. All right, (laughs) you want to get real? The gloves are coming off. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer ever in the history of the world. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all of these worthless wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now remember, remember, 605, some of these, the brightest and best are carried off to Babylon. They're put into service. Uh, Some of these guys are Daniel and his three friends, which are the subject of the book of Daniel. These Hebrew men who are bright, who are wise, who are gifted by God. They're brought into the service of the king, made a part of this entourage of wise men. And now they're under the threat of punishment too, because it's an order that all of these guys are going to be put to death. So they find themselves in a very dire place. So when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He was a a diplomat. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch, the the army commander, then explained the, the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. No one else can do this. Daniel goes, maybe God will give me the ability. So then Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you've heard those names before. Uh, they show up later. He urged them to plead for, uh, plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Again, no human can know what someone else dreamed, maybe interpret it, but not know but maybe if we beg God, he'll, he'll show us the way. He'll spare us from death. Uh, so he begged them to, to plead to God so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, and God is so good, he's so faithful. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God gave Daniel the ability to do what no one else could do. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He remembered to give thanks. Next, he went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, stop the guillotine. Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, you can see right here that if Daniel had been a little more shrewd, a little more worldly, a little more savvy, he would have waited just a little longer to make this, you know, stop the stop the execution announcement, right? Uh, he, he would have waited for Arioch just to kind of you know, work his way through a few of the wise men. 
these frauds, these phonies, these guys who actually have it out for Daniel, we'll see later, they're responsible for getting him thrown into a lion's den later, if you know that story. These people don't like Daniel. They're, they're not only his professional competition, they're actually looking to destroy him. They are, they are enemies. And if Daniel would have just zipped his lip for a little bit longer, Ariok would have just done what the king asked. He would have put some wise men to death. Daniel would have had a few less enemies to deal with in the world. No fault of his own. He didn't do it. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't hurt anybody. It would have been the king's doing. But what do we see here? We see Daniel showing a concern, not just for himself and his three Hebrew friends, but, but he runs ahead and he stops the king from doing this thing. And he's living out, he's, notice this, he's living out the very thing that Jeremiah was writing to these exiles, telling them to do back home. He's looking ways, for ways to prosper his neighbors, to, to prosper people who are sworn enemies of him. He's looking for ways to prosper this king who had destroyed his homeland, had, had great, brought great harm to his family. He's looking to prosper this city, this empire, this evil empire. I mean, you can think of President Snow in the Hunger Games. I mean, Daniel's this boy from District 12 who's been carried off. And, and here he is, he's helping this guy, the evil emperor. See, if Daniel were more savvy, if he were more worldly, if he took worldly advice, he would have done this differently. And he probably, in a worldly way, would have come out ahead. But instead, he trusted God and he knew the calling he was under. So take me to the king, he says, stop this. So Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. So the king asked Daniel, also called, also called Belteshazzar, they all have two names. They have a Babylonian name and a Hebrew name. This is his Hebrew name. So he asks him, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, you know what? <laughs> your astrologers, your wise men, they're actually right about one thing. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. That's not humanly possible, O king. I love this. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And he's the one who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar, it's not just me, it's, it's God working through me. He has shown the king what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. And then Daniel lays it out. But we're gonna skip that part because no one wants to hear about someone else's dream. I'm sticking to it. Um, except for the fact that if you wanna go home and read this, it is really fascinating. There's a promise at the end of this dream and the promise is that kingdoms will rise and fall. And again, I need you to hear me on this. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the people of God will never fear because a day is coming when God will establish a kingdom that will grow and it will expand and it will fill the whole earth and nothing will undo it. And it is built on the rock of ages, God's own Messiah. That's the promise there, but we're skipping over that. I want, to see, I want you to see how after Daniel lays this all out, tells him the dream and interprets it, I want you to see how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Then the king, hold on, then the king fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. Now this is the stuff that people do to kings, not kings do to their subjects. There's a great reversal here. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He is a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. I just got to remind you, I said this last week, that the reason we prosper the city, 
is not just because we're living in tough times and, and people need blessing, although that's true. I mean, our world needs goodness right now, but the, but the reason we prosper the city is because we are out to reveal God as he really is. As a God who is all about blessing, whose plan for the world from beginning to end is to bless it, to prosper it in the truest, richest, deepest, most substantive ways. Nebuchadnezzar sees that at the end. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and he lavished many gifts on him, true to his word, and he made him ruler over the entire province, you know, the whole, the whole area around Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king not only prospered him, but the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's um, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, uh, administrators over the province of Babylon. So his, his friends got a promotion too, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. See, at the end of it, God's promise in Jeremiah 29 comes true. Daniel seeks to prosper the city that he's living in, to prosper even his enemies, and in the end, he finds himself being prospered too. But here's the sticking point for me, and I think probably for you. I hear that story and I think, okay, okay. But then I think, you know what? Surely God could have worked this out some other way. I mean, last week we saw a God who fed Elijah with ravens. I mean, surely God could have blessed his people. He could have protected Daniel and his friends. And he could have done it at the expense of the bad guys. Not while blessing the bad guys. Why on earth would God, a God who is righteous and just, why on earth would God bless the clear enemy of his people? Why would God ask us, his people, to bless even our enemies, right? And, and that question, it, it, you know, it, it turns in my mind so often when I'm experiencing hardship, when, when we're living in tough times. But here's the problem. God understands something that we don't understand, and we claim to understand it as Christians. We, we sing songs about it. We sang a song about it today already and yet we don't really believe that it's true. See, the reason God prospers even people like Nebuchadnezzar, the reason God tells his people in exile to work for the prosperity of his city is because God understands something that we need to come to understand, and it's this, that grace is what changes people. Grace is what changes people. Not law, not rules, not shame, not judgment, not revenge, not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Grace is what changes people. Not, not even, hear me on this and listen carefully, not even truth. Truth alone doesn't change people, do you know that? In the Bible, it's always grace and truth together. The world doesn't need more truth. The, the, the world needs more grace and truth because grace is what changes people. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is the kindness of God that we don't deserve. Grace is treating people not as their sins deserve, but treating them better than their sins deserve. Grace is what Paul said. It's, it's, it's giving your hungry enemy something to eat and something to drink. It's what Jesus said. It's loving your enemy and praying for them. See, grace is what changes people. But, but we hear that and we think, wait a minute, that can't be right. 
Surely that can't be right because if we just show grace to the bad guys, if we love them undeservedly, if, 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 if we don't hold them accountable, then, then grace will enable and, and grace will lead people into a, an attitude of entitlement and, and grace will mean they just keep doing it again and again and again. Where is the accountability? Certainly it can't just be grace that changes people. And I get it. I struggle with this too, but here's what we have to reckon with today. That grace is God's way. Throughout the Bible, you can look at lots of different moments where God interacts with the world differently, but when it comes to the fullness of time, when God does the most important thing he'll ever do, when he comes to reconcile the world to himself once and for all and to deal with our sin and and invite us back into relationship, he does it not through a show of force, not through shame, not through better laws. He does it through grace. He sends us his son to give his life on a cross. Grace is what changes people. Grace is God's way. But we look at that and we think, you know what, but if if you do that, people will walk all over you. If you just show grace, especially to your enemies, that is the weakest kind of weakness, isn't it? If, If you think it's just about grace, then the bad guys will get away with murder. And you know, you're right. Literally. I mean, think about how weak Jesus looked as he was nailed to a cross, almost completely naked, struggling to to take a breath. He couldn't even take a breath. Think about how weak he looked. Think about how weak he looked when people came up and, and 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 they hurled insults. And they laughed at him and they accused him of wrongdoing, things that he didn't do and he couldn't, he couldn't answer them. And, and think about how weak Jesus looked as people gambled for his clothes. They stole his clothes. The only thing he owned, they stole his clothes and there was no accountability. People literally got away with murder. And meanwhile, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I don't know about you, but I look at that and I go, Jesus, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. This is not a mistake. This is not an accident. They know good and well what they're doing. See, from my vantage, yeah, grace is weak. Grace is an invitation to let people walk all over you. If you show grace to people, they will literally get away with murder. It's true. And if the story ends there on Good Friday, we're right. Grace is foolish. It means nothing. It changes nothing. It's a move of the powerless, the move of people who don't have a better option But the story doesn't end there, does it? 2,000 years later, here we are. And we're people who, we don't have a connection to this land. Most of us don't have an ethnic connection to the Israelites. Why would we care about the God of Israel? Why would we care about some accused criminal who gave his life on a cross 2,000 years ago? How is it even possible that we gather here weekly to sing praises to his name, to the name of Jesus? How is it possible that we've come to pray to him and through him in every hardship? How is it possible that, that we reject 
well-tested, long-standing worldly wisdom to listen to his teaching, his teaching, this guy who died on a cross, listen to his teaching instead. How is it possible that we model our lives not after the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, but, but Jesus of Nazareth? How is it possible that we sit here today and we think of all of the great military commanders, all of the great nations, we pledge our allegiance to him. His campaign is our hope. How, how is it possible that we give sacrificially to his cause? And not just us, but, but, but billions of people who have lived between then and now who've done the same. It's because we know, whether we know it or not, deep down that force does not compel us. Laws have not changed us. Shame doesn't do anything constructive. But grace is what changes people. It's changed us. It's, it has the power to melt the human heart. I know in my life when, when I'm so tempted to to not do things God's way or, or when, I'm, when I'm being assaulted by evil and evil people, I, I want to do the things that my sinful nature tells me to do, the things the world says, go ahead and do it, you've got it right. And the thing that stops me is not that is because I'm a pastor, because I desire to be a good person, or because I'm, I'm afraid of jeopardizing my standing of, with God or going to heaven someday, that's not it, that's not it. I do it, what restrains me is that in those moments, God keeps reminding me of how good he's been to me even when I was his enemy. Words of a song that say, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. And I think about the kindness that I've been shown and I think about how that kindness is what melts me every time. And I realize that although it seems weak, grace is the most powerful force in the world. Grace is what changes people. Grace is what melts people. Grace is what brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. Grace is what brings me to my knees. And you can look around the world and you can just see where hate has gotten us. Just look around. Or where more and more and stricter laws have gotten us. You can even see where truth without grace has gotten us because we're living in this time where everyone is a self-appointed prophet and we're standing as watchmen, declaring, decreeing, you know, decrying all of the evils of the world on our platforms of social media, self-appointed prophets, speaking truth into the world. What, what is that doing without grace? Nothing. We see where a culture of vengeance and violence has gotten us. It hasn't made our world better and it doesn't make us better but we know that when you bless someone who is hurting you, when you love someone who has been your enemy, even when they don't deserve it, especially when they've really hurt you, that's the best chance you have at melting them. It's the best way you have to, to begin to undo them. Burning coals on their head, right? And the reason we want to see people undone is so that God can begin to remake them in the same way that he's remaking us. See, only grace has that power. Growing up as a kid, I watched for 14 years of my life as my mom loved a man who I believe, my father, who was not worthy of her love, who, who did not honor her, who did not. And for 14 years, I looked at my mom and I just thought, you're, you're a fool, you are weak. 
until the day I came home from school and my dad sat us down and he said that he finally had met Jesus. And I think long before he met Jesus, he had experienced his grace through the loving presence of my mom, Grace. I know, I know, even though I fight against it, Grace is what changes people. And that may be hard for you to hear, but there's something in you that knows this is true, right? You know it's true. The Spirit is speaking to you right now. You know this is true. And so as we close, here's what I want to remind you of. God has no limits on who he will not prosper. And so I want you to think right now. I want you to make that true in your life. Are there limits on who you will prosper? And I want you to think right now, who is that person that you are most angry with right now? Who is the person who has been most hurtful to you right now? Who is the person that you would describe and, and you would use the word, they are, they are my enemy. And I'll tell you, there have been times in my life where this would be hard to do. I'm in a season right now where this is actually pretty easy for me to do, sadly. I want you to think about who is that person for you? And then I want us to take a moment together and I'll lead you in it because we're gonna sit here and we're gonna ask God, God, what do you want me to do to prosper this person. If you called your exiles to prosper Babylon and to prosper Nebuchadnezzar after all he had done, God, what, what do you want me to do to prosper this person? God, if you could prosper me when I was your foe, if you could declare forgiveness from the cross, even though I wasn't actually in the crowd, figuratively I was there in the crowd and yet you spoke a word of mercy over me. God, what, what do you want me to do to prosper my enemy? And maybe it's praying for them. And, and we think of prayer as something weak, of something small, of something insignificant. It's not. Prayer is powerful. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's one of the first things on his list. It's no small thing to pray for the well-being, for the turning of someone who's, who's actively working against you. Maybe it's extending forgiveness to them when they haven't even asked for it yet. Because that's how God forgives us. Before we even ask, his heart is already moved to forgiveness. Maybe it's an act of kindness in some other way. I don't know, but I want to lead you in a dangerous, difficult prayer, but a prayer that we need to pray as the people of God right now. Let me lead you. God in heaven, we think of ourselves as the good guys and girls and we're the good people. And yet the truth of your word says that we were at one time enemies of yours and there are days where we still live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And God, yet you've shown us mercy. You've shown us grace. You've melted us. You've undone us. You're remaking us. God, we're thankful. And Lord, we pray that you would show us right now what you would have us to do to prosper the person that we're thinking of, each of us. That person, that group, whatever it is that we see as an enemy, God, show us right now what you would have us do to prosper them.
God, and I know right now my mind is flooded with, with all kinds of resistance as to why I shouldn't do this. By your spirit, be stronger than my sinful nature. Be stronger than what's in me. God, give me the conviction that, give us the conviction that grace is what changes people. That grace is your way, and so it needs to be our way too. God, today in your church, begin a, a belief in the power of grace as our way. God, give us a conviction that if our world is ever gonna get better, if, if we're gonna get better, if our churches are gonna get healthier, we've got to start with more grace, not less. And so God, I pray again, you'd make this really personal on us right now. What do you want us to do? How would you call us to prosper that person who is hurting us right now? God, do you want us to pray? Then inspire us to pray. Every moment we're feeling hurt, inspire us to pray for them instead. God, if, if you want us to forgive, even if they haven't asked for it, move in us to do this impossible work of forgiveness but show us the way we believe you can by your spirit. God, if there's something else, show us. Because we believe that grace is your way. And, and we do believe, God, we do believe, even though we don't act like it, we believe that grace is the hope of the world. Direct us and speak to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.